Hey there, it's Laura Flynn from Making Contact. Did you know our listeners are the ones responsible for making this show happen every week? We provide the show for free to radio stations because we think it's important to creating dialogue and impacting public discussions and policies. Right now, more than 100 stations in the U.S. carry us. If you like what you hear, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation to support our work. That's radioproject.org. Now for this week's show. I'm Salima Hamarani, and this is Making Contact. On June 26, 2018, the Supreme Court upheld the third version of Trump's travel ban. Activists have been fighting the ban since January 2017 by protesting at airports and in cities all over the U.S. and by filing lawsuits. And we won over and over again. We won in numerous lawsuits. We won in numerous courts until the Muslim ban reached the Supreme Court. And the question for the Supreme Court in this moment was, will this be another Korematsu-type case where you look the other way at the government's bigotry, where you give the green light to racial and ethnic profiling? And this year, like in Korematsu, the judiciary failed its obligation to the Americans it serves. That's Zara Belu, the director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations San Francisco chapter. We'll hear from Zara again later. She'll explain that the latest ban will operate at the visa and consulate level. No protests at airports, as people are denied entry. Instead, people will be stopped from embarking on trips to the U.S. Stay tuned for that updated interview. But first, we wanted to remember the original ban. Nisrin Abdurrahman was in flight when President Trump signed the first travel ban in 2017. A Stanford PhD student in anthropology, Nishran was returning to the U.S. from her fieldwork in Somalia. What do you think, Dad? Should I go? And he's like, you know, I think it's just better be uh, safe than sorry. He was like, I think, you know, you should go. My name is Nisreen Al-Amin Abdurrahman. Um, I am a PhD student here at Stanford in anthropology. I'm originally from Sudan, um, but I'm also a green card holder. I'm a permanent resident. I've been living in the U.S. for 24 years. We started hearing about this possibility of a Muslim ban and this executive order that might get signed. Trump put a temporary ban on travelers from Sudan and six other Muslim-majority countries from entering the U.S. And my father and I were in this, like, very small, house in this like working class neighborhood in Khartoum and glued to the TV watching CNN trying to figure out what's going to happen. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. On the day that we heard that this is going to get signed, I decided probably within the span of an hour that I was going to get the next flight out. We only want to admit those into our country who will support our country and love deeply our people. Finally get on this flight late at night. I barely had enough time to say goodbye to my immediate relatives. Didn't get to say goodbye to any of the people that I've been living with in my field research sites. Even like my goodbye to my parents was really rushed. And it's like those moments when you're like, my father's 80. You know, he's healthy, alhamdulillah, but at the same time, it's like, I don't really know when I'm going to see him again. So I just kind of like didn't think about that. And I just like got on the flight. And when I got on the flight, I just started crying because 
It's like, you know, it just felt really strange to not know when I was going to see them again. I was born in Germany. My father um, was studying in Germany, and I grew up for part of my life in Germany. So I actually never lived in Sudan. I mean, I've gone back and forth to Sudan when I was a child, and really I'm kind of like a, a child of, of the world, and, you know, moved around a lot, lived in different places. My parents moved back to Sudan a couple of years ago, and so doing my field research was actually really timely because I got to spend time with them. Growing up, I actually didn't get to spend that much time with my, my family, so we've been sort of always far away from each other. I was in a, a boarding school in Germany. I was a, you know on a scholarship there. I had a hard time. You know, I was one of the few black students in the school. There was a lot of xenophobia at the time because the Berlin Wall had just fallen recently. You know, as these economies were integrating, a lot of people were unemployed and they blamed it on foreigners and we were having immigration issues. You know, I was like 13 or 14 and I started reading Roots and then I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I just started thinking about how it might be to be somewhere where there are like many other people like me. And so that sort of just went to my head that I wanted to come to the U.S., but my parents didn't have the money to send me, so I kept applying to the sister school of the school that I was in and then eventually got in and, and got a scholarship as well. That was actually the boarding school that Ivanka Trump went to. The flight attendant announced my name and said, you know, your connecting flight is departing very soon since we're arriving late. Please make your way up to the front. At this point, I'm wearing, like, full hijab, you know, coming from Sudan. I'm trying to, you know, saying, excuse me, can I get through? And there's this man, British man with his kids, who decides to block me from getting to the front. And I was like, excuse me, I really need to go and, you know, catch this flight. And he said, yeah, we're all waiting for flights. You're just going to have to wait. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry, sir, but I really need to get on this flight. He was like, we all really need to get on this flight, like, you know, on our whatever flights. You're just going to have to wait. And he just kind of looked at me and just refused. He literally, like, did, you know, physically kind of blocked me from leaving the plane. In his head, he doesn't realize, like, I, I really need to get on this flight. Like, it's not just like I'm going to miss getting to work on time. Like, I really need to get on this flight. And he just, there was no empathy. I mean, probably also no understanding of my situation. I don't know. But I also felt in that moment that he's looking at me as a Muslim woman. And, and you know, actually what I thought about, too, is his child, you know, his son was there and he was looking at me. Like, what lesson are you teaching your son? Get to the flight and the person says, you know, I'm really sorry. Had you gotten here two minutes earlier, you would have gotten on this flight. So I actually know that had the man let me through, I probably would have been on that flight and none of this would have happened because I then had to wait for another three hours to get on the next flight. Growing up in Germany in the late 1980s, early 90s, I was like obsessed at the time with like Prince and Michael Jackson. We didn't see very many people who looked like us resisting. Um, I was really interested in the civil rights movement and like the Black Panther Party and... There was something about it, I think, that helped me deal with being a black person living in Germany and dealing with racism. You know, I'm going through security and they're like, oh, you know, you've been selected, like randomly selected for searching. And usually it happens before you get to the gate, but this is after. So the other person who was with me was Afghani. 
So we were both kind of joking between us, like, okay, random selection, like the Afghani and the Sudanese, you know. So I finally get on this second flight. I couldn't sleep because I was really nervous because at this point I had seen on Facebook somebody post um, about the fact that the order had been signed. So I knew on the plane that this order had been signed. I mean, I saw that and I was like, this is what I was trying to avoid. The seven countries on this list have all been, the lives of people in these seven countries have all been impacted by U.S. policy, U.S. military intervention, U.S. sanctions. And so we think of them as these enemy nations, but we don't really think about on a day-to-day basis how are ordinary people being affected by these policies in terms of like how they're making ends meet. You know, these are all people who like, you know, get up in the morning and send their kids to school. Like they're just like anybody else that you, you and I know. On the one hand, I love Sudan and I love, you know, obviously my family who's there. And on the other hand, this regime, which has been in power since 1989, has been extremely repressive. Especially in in parts of Sudan that are marginalized, there are ongoing wars, people are being killed on a daily basis. I've seen, just over the last five years, in my own family, people go from having three meals a day to now having like one and a half meals, essentially. By the time I got on the flight, I think I hadn't slept in like 36 or maybe 48 hours. I was really tired, but I just couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even like watch a movie. I was just, I was in my head rethinking some of these, processing some of these feelings that were coming up for me. And I could barely eat too. I get to the airport around 10 in the evening. There's a citizenship and permanent resident lane that I'm, I'm allowed to go in. So I go in and put my green card in this machine and there's this paper that comes out. And if it's a tick, then you just move through. So I was like really hoping that it would come out with a green tick and there was an X through it. And I remember the day, you know, I got my green card, we had like a spontaneous party in my office. Finally, I'm not going to have to ever deal with this again, you know. Still, obviously, I'm traveling on a Sudanese passport, so I still had to deal with visas, but like everything got a lot easier after that. Once I had my green card, I physically felt different. There was like this burden that was lifted off my shoulders. I remember the first time I traveled with a green card and the officer said, welcome home. And I almost started crying because it was like this moment of, wow, like I've never actually heard someone say that to me. You know, it's always like, oh, I'm sorry, I need to bring you to this area for further questioning. And so in that moment, I was just like, I'm back to this? You know, after so long, just that fear, that anxiety, even that holding area. I'd been in that area many times before. I'd been questioned many times before. I handed him my green card and he looked at it and he said, can I have your passport? He looks at the passport and he says, okay, just, you know, sit tight for a minute. And he goes to a supervisor who is standing on the corner. My green card actually says Germany on it. And at first the supervisor said, well, you just process her like a normal green card holder. And then as he was literally, as he was walking back, the person called him back and said, wait a minute. Um, Actually, you need to ask her to go in for further questioning. Wow. Like, actually, again, like if I had gotten here maybe 20 minutes before, I could have just gone through. And the first part of the questioning was fairly familiar. Where are you coming from? What were you doing? The educational institutions I had gone to, the languages I speak. He asked me about all the countries that I've been to 
And so I started, you know, listing the countries that I'd recently been to. And he was like, no, like in your entire life. The officer told me, I don't know much about Sudan. So um, I want to hear you talk about the situation in Sudan. Like talk to me about the political situation in Sudan. Because then he started asking me about whether or not I knew of radical groups in Sudan, you know, whether I knew people who had radical views. And he was taking notes. At some point, he came back to me and asked me for my social media handles. Then at some point, they were getting tired. It was like maybe one or two in the morning at at this point, and they needed to shut down that terminal, so they had to transfer us to another terminal. We then sort of got handed over to the Customs and Border Patrol folks who, you know, didn't know anything about us. So these two women officers led me into a room and they told me to put my hands against the wall and to spread my legs. And then they did a body pat down and it was really uncomfortable, actually. And then they said they had to handcuff me because they were transferring us from this terminal to the other terminal that was a 24 hour terminal since they still didn't know what was going to happen to us and knew that at that point, if I'm getting handcuffed, even if they're saying, oh, we don't know what's going to happen to you, we're getting led into this van like that I could end up in a detention center. So I started crying. And the woman who handcuffed me was a black woman. I saw her visi- like visibly like react to me crying. And it was like an interesting moment because the other officer who was there with me, who was not black, was like cold face, no reaction. I mean, I was literally shaking. Like I hadn't cried like that in a while just because I was scared. And so they were going back and forth, and then eventually the handcuffs came off, and we were in the car together. Like, she was still really shaken by it, and I, like, leaned over to her, and I said, you know, it's okay. Like, I knew you were just doing your job. You know? Because um, I don't know, it was just like this. I felt like it was, in a way, a weird moment where we were both, like, dehumanized. I could just see, like, there was just something in her that was, like, you know, where she connected to to my, like, sense of fear and, like, was empathetic to that. You know, I think this historical moment is obviously generating a lot of extreme feelings in people, including in this person. And, and I think there's this fear that then gets projected onto people like me. When we talk about this is necessary to keep our country safe, when you ask black people in this country that, question. Historically, when have black people had the right to feel safe in this country? It just makes me angry because I just feel like it's dehumanizing to be told, like, what you went through needs to happen to keep our country safe. Who has the right to feel safe and who doesn't? So then, you know, we got transferred to this other 24-hour area, and there were other people who were being let in, like an Iranian and an Iraqi citizen, who they were in handcuffs too. Um, and, you know, it's like this, one of them was this, like, like a nerdy Iranian PhD student who was just, I felt like, I felt his pain because he was just like, what the hell is going on? You know, he's like there to go study with this professor at Cornell for a couple of months and had a visa, you know, and was just, like, really confused. And there was this other Iraqi man whose wife and child were waiting outside for him. And he, I think, had been waiting forever for a visa to get reunited with them. And just feeling all of those emotions in that room was, like, really intense. 
you know, and I was trying to help him translate, but the officers wouldn't let me. And I felt like in that room, we were really treated more like criminals than in the previous holding area. And it was like we couldn't sit next to each other. We couldn't talk to each other. Um, none of us were brought food, and we'd been in there for a couple hours. At some point, I asked if I could eat my sandwich, and they said yes, but it had to be, like, in plain sight. And this is by this time, it's like 3 in the morning. They call you up, not by your name, but they're like, Sudanese green card holder. So I, I walk up, and then he says... Um, there was some paperwork that he was signing. He was looking at a computer screen, and they got a message, I guess, telling them that they could let me go. Because nothing, and he said, quote-unquote, derogatory came up in the system against you, which I'm assuming means there's no criminal record and the interview didn't raise any red flags. But he said, if I were you, I wouldn't travel unless, like, you want to go through this whole thing again. And then he just, like, handed me my passport and was like, you're free to go. And I was like, looking around like is like for real like I'm free to go and I just like grabbed my passport and like ran out you know and I don't know I was like so full of adrenaline and so happy to be let out that um I didn't even like really fully process what had happened I just I went to my mailbox today and I got this letter I can read it I guess um dear muslima I'm terribly sorry you were inconvenienced on returning to the U.S., but recognize that you come from a country, Sudan, that was designated as long ago as 1993 by the State Department as a sponsor of terrorism. Recognize also that Americans don't owe you anything and that you're fortunate to be here receiving an education. Coincidentally, I've been to Sudan, a shitty hole run by a maniac, cartoon stank of piss and most likely still does, but I have no trouble getting Johnny Black at prices even lower than what one generally finds in Cairo. Like I always say, if you want a ready supply of whiskey, go to an Islamic Republic. The next time you fly on a jet or use a computer or a smartphone, won't you take a moment to encant a prayer for the poor, maligned white man? After all, you live in a world that he made. And was signed and, you know, address on it and everything. Anyway, it's just... I just got, like, a couple minutes ago, so... <laughs> I mean, I've gotten my share of, like, hate mail, like, through Facebook and email. And, you know, for every, like, hateful message that I've gotten, I've gotten probably five to ten messages of support and love. And people say to me, you know, like, I'm glad you're the one who's speaking. This land is your land by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we continue our coverage of Donald Trump's executive order, we're joined uh, by Nisreen El Amin, a PhD student. My uncle, he's 98. I was on the you know, front of the newspaper in Sudan, too, and he clipped all of the like newspaper articles and like listened to the Democracy Now! interview. And he said, you know, um, like, she speaks in a way that people have to listen. There, there's a way in which my dad said, you know, they hit the wrong person. They thought probably, you know, this, like, barely five foot tall, you know, Sudanese woman was going to keep her mouth shut, but my daughter's not going to keep her mouth shut, you know. So there's that. I mean, I've been an activist all my life. I, I'm used to speaking out against injustices. Chaos at New York's JFK International Airport. Hundreds of people protested the detention of at least a dozen travelers, including Harvard graduate and PhD candidate at Stanford, Nizrin Elamin, who told us by phone about being handcuffed and detained. I felt a lot of shame and guilt, actually. 
you know, I think shame around the fact that I have a lot of privilege that a lot of people who have been put in this position don't have, right? Just being being a green card holder, being someone who, you know, is affiliated with Stanford, uh, you know. Um, I'm sure even actually in my detention, there's a way in which I got treated better than other people who didn't, who couldn't pull, you know, that affiliation out. What happened to me is something that happens on a daily basis to people coming through borders. Um, what was exceptional about it is that I have a green card. So, you know, and of course, and I was one of the first people to be detained under the order. So there was a lot of media attention on my, on my story. I was at a teach-in yesterday. One of the panelists with me is, is a Japanese-American man who's 83 years old. Um, he was talking about uh, his internment as an eight-year-old. He was interned for two years in Colorado. After I spoke, he held my hand and he said, you know, he said he was really proud of me for, like, speaking out. And he said, you know, I want you to not internalize what they're saying about you because it took me a lifetime to undo, you know, what I internalize as a child. There's, like, a narrowing of belonging that's happening, right? And I think what we need to do as human beings in the U.S. is to broaden that. And we have to use that to say, because of our history, we now need to move forward and resist in a different direction. Like, we can't move back, you know? People have, you know, sacrificed so much for us to be at this point, and there's so much still for us to do. Um, and we can't let, yeah, we, we, we can't let people take that away from us. Nisrin Abdulrahman's story comes to us from the Stanford Storytelling Project. To hear more of their work or subscribe to the podcast, The State of the Human, visit storytelling.stanford.edu. You're listening to Making Contact. To hear past shows, subscribe to our podcast, or to get updates, visit radioproject.org. I recently sat down with Zara Ballou, the director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, San Francisco chapter. Together, we listened to the story you just heard. Nisran Abdurrahman's piece about returning from Somalia in 2017. When I asked her what she thought of Nisran's story, Zara told me that it was painful to listen to. I've been wanting to cry about the Muslim ban since Tuesday, June 26, when we got the decision, and she effectively pushed me over the edge. And what was it about that experience that pushed you over the edge? The whole experience of what it feels like to come across the border and be uncertain about one's fate is something that has recently struck me as a type of an assault. You worry about, I worry about physical safety, about electronic privacy. I worry about whether I'll be handcuffed or be able to even come home. And to hear Nisreen talk about her experience with that was hard. How do you also feel listening to that story from over a year ago, over a year ago, and we're still fighting the Muslim ban? She said something that was important, and it's that her experience was new and unique in some ways because she was a green card holder, but that what she went through is routine for people who are crossing borders. So it's frustrating to know that in some ways— we are still living with a Muslim ban, and it is now a permanent one that we will continue to look for ways to fight, but also that 
this is happening in a backdrop where asylum seekers are having their children kidnapped, where people coming across borders have almost internalized. And Nisreen talks about this, too. It was routine for her to get stopped and questioned before she had her green card. And I wonder about how many people are living with that humiliation, with that dehumanization and with that shame in silence with or without the Muslim ban. So that piece, Nisran's piece, that story was about the original ban. And now the Supreme Court has upheld a newer version of the ban, which is the third version. So what does that mean? What's different about this third version of the ban? Between the first ban and now the third ban, there have been a couple of shifts. The first one was Iraq, Iran, Syria, Somalia, Libya, Sudan, Yemen. Over the course of multiple iterations and different review processes, Iraq and Sudan eventually came off the list. Chad was added and then removed. And then North Korea and Venezuela were also added, but in very narrow ways where the people that are impacted number just a few dozen from each of those countries, whereas there's a nearly all-out ban on any immigrants attempting to come from Syria or, or Yemen, for example. So the country list as it is today is Iran, Syria, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, North Korea, and Venezuela. So what's the plan? How do we continue fighting the ban? And are we going to see people being held at airports again? No. The way that is manifesting is that people are not being granted visas. So they're not getting stuck at U.S. borders because they're not getting the visas to make it onto the flights to get stuck at the U.S. borders. The challenge with that is that these people are out of sight and out of mind. It's easy to forget the suffering we don't see. And so it's been important for us to continue to share stories where possible of what this looks like. But even getting those stories can be hard because the countries that are impacted by the ban do not have open and functioning U.S. embassies. And on the legal front, is there a chance of overturning this law in another court? Lawyers are continuing to look for cases and opportunities to challenge the ban. It won't be overturned in the same way that this case proceeded, but there may be other opportunities, other challenges that could work. For individuals who are impacted by the ban, we urge them to fight it by going through the application process while working with a civil rights or immigration attorney. And I list this first and foremost as a way of fighting back because I don't want people to stop trying. It is in their trying and in those challenges that we find opportunities to continue to fight back. For the rest of us, I would say that the fight in Congress matters a lot. The last branch of government that can hold the executive accountable is the legislative branch. And we need to push our members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, to take action, to not just talk about the resistance, but to actually be the resistance. I want to see all of them co-sponsoring the legislation that seeks to defund the Muslim ban. I want to see them sitting on the House floor demanding votes on that legislation. I want to make sure that they are showing up at airports and making inquiries on behalf of their constituents and working with civil rights groups who are fighting this. And if they won't, then the last check is the people themselves. And what I mean there is that we have the opportunity to change Congress in November. 
we have the opportunity to say, you can't just talk about the resistance. You need to be about it. You need to work for this. And if you don't, then we will remove you because you don't represent us. You know, Zara, for the past year, we've had a lot of demonstrations at airports and protests in big cities while the travel ban moved through the courts. And I'm curious to know what you think the role of street organizing is when the primary strategy is in the courts or in Congress, as you mentioned. I think that the fight is primarily in the streets. I am not putting all of my hope in a system that has permitted the genocide of indigenous people, the enslavement of black people, the continued murder of black people by police officers, and the kidnapping of children at, at the border. I'm putting my hope in, in my fellow Americans who recognize that America's history is one that actually aligns with the Muslim ban, but that it is our work of challenging it that sets the course for the future. We need those street demonstrations as much, if not more, than we need additional good lawsuits. That was Zara Balou, the director of the Council on American Islamic Relations. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to Nisran Abdurrahman, Halvia Taina, Anne Lee Herring, and Eileen Williams from the Stanford Storytelling Project, and Jake Warka. I'm your host, Salima Hamarani, and thank you for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>